0: We consider this planet more of an Earth cousin than an Earth twin. Our galaxy is probably littered with cousins of Kepler-186f. The Interplanetary Podcast.
1: The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin.
2: do 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 doo doo oh yeah, baby, Eliza Quintana. I like to refer
0: to her as EQ. EQ, yeah. I mean, <laughs> come on. On this day, 50 years ago, 1970, Apollo
2: program, Matt. Yep. Ill-fated Apollo 13 returns to Earth safely. What is often regarded as the most dramatic of all space missions. Pretty dramatic. In 2014, NASA made a public announcement that Kepler Space Telescope and Eliza Quintana et al. had discovered the first Earth-sized planet, Kepler-186f, in the habitable zone of another star. 582 light
0: years away. Incredible stuff. Now, Matt... We've got a sad moment in the podcast. Mm. Rest in peace, John Conway, inventor yep. of
2: Game of Life. Yeah, hugely influential maths guy. Loads and loads and loads of stuff. Very Rest in uh, peace. Influenced, influenced Brian Eno. Brian mm. Eno loved that Game of Life thing. God, he did. Yeah, I've got a great interview today that's going to have to be split up because it was two and a half hours talking to. Uh, Kelvin Long Kelvin about Long. interstellar travel. Well, let's be honest, Matt. That's
0: a two and a half hour conversation, if ever we heard one.
2: It, it, it is. So we've got interstellar travel. I, I will do most of that conversation in today's podcast. Um, however, I shall be moving the second chunk, which is about conscious stars. How about that one, Ooh. conscious stars. You had me at conscious. To be honest, conscious stars. Any Rudy Rucker fan out there will will know what I'm talking about. That should be interesting. So I'm going to move that over to Patreon. There we go. So you can listen to that there during the week when you're bored. Boom. Jamie, what was the big news this week? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what, should we talk uh, about Flat Earth? We, let's talk about Flat Earth. I mean, Matt, you've been, I mean, how many views have, have you now got on the internet? I don't know. It's 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 considerably more than we get on the podcast anyway. Definitely more. (laughs) Do you want to give us a bit of context for anyone who didn't see our Instagram post? Yeah. So there's a channel, a UK channel, although I think it's quite big in Australia as well, called Lad Bible. Okay. Yeah. uh, Lad Bible, and it's quite it's quite it's it's pretty big, isn't it? Lad Bible, and uh, they run a thing called Agree to Disagree, and it's me who they've called a scientist, which is, let's face it, a little bit... That's probably the most inaccurate part of the it's whole thing. It's pushing it. <laughs> and it is definitely pushing it. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a science communicator yes. rather than a scientist. And, uh, yes, it, it's scientist versus flat earther. And, yeah, it came out this week, and uh, it was quite scary, Jamie. I, oh, this I bet it, it was. My, I was
0: very proud of you. My reputation. You, you, you
2: held your own, and you didn't
0: get you didn't get ruffled, by the flat, nasty flat earther. Um, no, no, you did very no. well, mate. You did very well. Um, and uh, yeah,
2: he's not nasty. He's just got he's just got an opinion that's wrong. That's all. Yeah, you, and remember, you know, he's probably a nice guy. And but sure, he it is. is his opin, it's his opinion that you should hate, and not him. Exactly. Exactly. That, that, that. I'm very proud of myself that I stuck to that um, adage. Quite. It's quite hard sometimes. Of course. So go and check it out. Now, I just wanted to address just one thing where, yeah. obviously, the edit edit makes it look as though I was sitting there going, oh, okay. It got me thinking. He was saying, oh, my God, the Chinese space program is so ridiculously, obviously fake. Mm. And I was thinking, what's he talking about? Because the Chin- as we know, the Chinese space program, particularly right now, is – pretty kick-ass although it they've is. had a couple of although they have a couple of rocket failures recently which is a bit worrying Matt he referred to bubbles coming out of helmets that all of their footage was underwater what's going on he can only be referring to one event and that because China became the third country to independently carry out an EVA mm. uh, an extra vehicular activity in a space they've only done it once, and that was on the 27th of September 2008, yes. as you know, on the Shenzhou 7 mission. And that was astronaut Shai Gang, and he was wearing the Chinese Fightian spacesuit, yes. and astronaut Luo boming wearing the Russian Orland spacesuit helping him out. Mm. So they're the only two Chinese people that have ever done a spacewalk, i.e. the only people that would be wearing a space helmet that you could possibly see bubbles. Now, I've watched the footage, and I I can't see what on earth he's talking about. No. And the only thing I can think of is that someone's found footage of them practising in the pool, yeah. which obviously you do, practice your EVA in uh-huh. a swimming pool, because it's the only way you can practice. Exactly. We've
0: been to one.
2: Yeah, we have been to the one in, uh, in where was it again? It was in Cologne. It was in Cologne. The largest European uh, testing pool. Yeah. And yeah, obviously you might see bubbles then. Um, maybe they've seen footage that has been poorly translated, i.e. from the Chinese to the English, and it's been translated in such a way that it looks like it says that they're doing a spacewalk rather than practising a spacewalk. Right. So maybe that's—I I just don't know—but it just is clearly crazy, and uh, I just thought that was interesting. I thought it was just interesting that China have only done one EVA themselves, and that was
0: yeah, Shenzhi absolutely. Seven. Well,
2: big shout out to the Chinese uh, space crew. We love you. Well, I want to do another big shout out to previous guest and patron Tupper
1: yes. from Old
2: Annapolis. We love Tupper. How you getting on, buddy? Uh, he has sent in uh, a little update about a ah. Osir- rex little spacecraft out in space, and has been practising landing or doing its little scrape of uh, Bennu. One step closer, eh? A four-hour checkpoint rehearsal. Oh, It comes out of orbit, then does a checkpoint burn, uh, which, which basically puts the spacecraft in a position where it checks its own trajectory, yeah, and works and works out how it's going to get down to the asteroid and do this scrape, because it turns out that this manoeuvre is so much harder than they thought it was going to be, because it's this asteroid Bennu is much more rocky and boulderous than they thought, so it is. it's going to be very very hard. So the spacecraft has to rely on its own cameras and its own skill. Uh, avoiding boulders, so they've been um, practicing this maneuver of going down and doing all this and looking at the thing and testing out all the equipment. Yeah, they even managed to deploy the sampling arm and things like that with the uh, touch and go sample acquisition oh, mechanism, tag-sam. the tag zam. Come on, uh, that all went very, very well. Apparently, exceptional because the whole team, of course, working from home. That's right. You know, they're mostly working from home. And some of them are going in when they have to do critical things like this, including our friend Tupper, who is chief engineer at Goddard. His friend Rich Burns, which I have to say is one of the best names for uh, a project manager at a space flight center, is Rich Burns. Few <laughs> Rich Burns. I mean, Love it. it's just um, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's 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 awesome. This is what he said. This rehearsal let us verify flight system performance during the descent, particularly the autonomous update and execution of the checkpoint burn. Executing this monumental milestone during this time of national crisis is a testament to the professionalism and focus of our team. It speaks volumes about their can-do attitude and hopefully will serve as a bit of a good news in these challenging times.
0: Beautiful. Rich Burns
2: there. Osiris Rex, product manager. I hope I haven't offended Tupper and his friend Rich. But absolutely legends. A pair of legends. Osiris Rex, I think, is one of the most underappreciated spacecraft there ever was. It's always having its little it's always being outshone by on a day there where it's done something special, buy another something special like the Changi 4 or or something like that. But yeah, what a great mission. So I can't wait. August the 25th, it's going down to do the actual actual drop down where it drops down, (sighs) goes near the surface, fires a charge of pressurised nitrogen that disturbs the surface and then scrapes up what it's um, dislodged and then brings it back to Earth. On September the twenty fourth, twenty twenty three. Matt,
0: if you were a betting man, what do you think that material is going to be comprised of?
2: Uh, rock and dust. Yeah. No. no platinum in there, or oh, anything like that? There's bound to there's bound to be some precious metals and things. Matt,
0: you know we were talking about Rich Burns. Do you remember when we worked together and our accountant was actually called Bernadette?
2: Yeah, Bernadette Cook the books. <laughs> Shout out to Bernadette. Oh, dear.
0: True story. Oh, what else have we got uh, this week,
2: Matt? Well, I think one of the most significant or potentially significant news stories for a while. Yes. You yes. Were, it it might be a very, I mean, the, the indications are here. We're sort of moving towards an explanation about why stuff exists. Ooh. It's a big question. Why are planets and stars and things like that made of matter and not, and not some made of matter, some made of antimatter, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. At some point, more matter was made than antimatter immediately after the Big Bang. And if, if the whole universe was somehow symmetrical, that wouldn't have happened. Equal amounts of antimatter and matter would have been made in the Big Bang and it would have all annihilated each other and there'd be nothing left. Right? So, <laughs> just energy. Yeah, of course. But luckily, something something happened that meant there's way more matter than antimatter. This new paper called Constraint on the Matter-Antimatter Symmetry Violating Phase in Neutrino Oscillations. If
0: you are not reading this in lockdown, I mean, come on. You've got to ask yourself,
2: what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, luckily, nature broke this down into several articles including a brilliant one in quantum magazine i have to say what this paper actually means but i thought i would take the story even further back than they do because they they kind of assume that you know quite a bit of stuff right are the laws of physics symmetrical as in do they when you look in a mirror for example do you see the same thing but happening in, happening in reverse, for example, mm. or, you know, being reflected back of you. And it would be really odd, wouldn't it, if you looked in a mirror and some things were reflected correctly and other things were reflected differently. So your kind of sense is that the rules of physics are symmetrical. Yes. And it almost seems odd that they're not. But there was a big dent to this in the 1950s Mm. when uh, parity was violated. So they were testing beta decay of cobalt-60 nuclei. Oh, yeah. Cobalt-60 is made in sort of nuclear reactions from nickel, I think, uh, or iron, and then goes back to nickel. Mm. But beta decay, i.e. a neutron transforming into a proton by the emission of an electron... Accompanied by an anti-neutrino, and you'll see how important neutrinos are. I'm with in a you. I'm with you so far. Uh, an experiment was carried out by Shang Shu Wu, and he demonstrated conclusively that weak interactions violate parity symmetry. Mm. So, in other okay. words, some reactions do not occur as often as their mirror image reactions. In if we take our analogy a little bit further so overall the symmetry of this quantum mechanical system can be restored if you add another form of symmetry
0: Aye. so that
2: you can say it, well, it this one's slightly out but this one's slightly out in a different way and you combine the two and you get back your um, symmetry Course. so shortly after p violation this parity violation they said well maybe there's a charge Uh, symmetry that's going out at the same time. Mm. So you get CP symmetry. So you put the two together and the symmetry then restores this symmetry. You've got the two, one slightly out, one slightly out the other way. You get your symmetry back, right? Right. And that was proposed in 1957 by Lev Lando. And uh, so that's the charge conjugation symmetry between particles and antiparticles and you put put that with your parity uh and you get your symmetry back however cp oh. symmetry although although it was proposed as as a way of restoring uh symmetry after parity violation <laughs> uh unfortunately uh in in 1964 James Cronin and Val Fitch mm. Won the Nobel Prize later, obviously in 1980. But in 1964, they discovered that there was also CP violation, that kaons, say what? Neutral kaons, yes, the way that they uh, decayed actually violated CP symmetry. So, uh, yeah, that totally shocked the entire physics world. And everyone was going, oh my God now you can do the same trick again it would seem by adding a time symmetry into this right so so you can you you add a third term to make it cpt uh, and that's now sort of a massive fundamental of quantum field theory so mm. between this charge parity and time you get your symmetry back, even though each of those individually are being, (laughs) uh, their symmetry isn't quite right, you get it back. Now, in some ways, you think, why do do we perceive time as going forward? Well, CP violation actually is a a kind of really weak arrow of time that certain reactions aren't reversible because they're different. When you time reverse them, so mm. you kind of have to be going forward in time, but it's such a weak arrow; it's it's kind of it's it's not the sort of full story. Entropy is always considered the sort of big, strong arrow of time, uh, but no one really has a, a proper explanation for it. So, arrow of time sinking to the Nile. Now, there was a guy. So, what? Wh- why are we even talking about this? And what what the hell has this got? I to wish I knew. Matter and antimatter, Jamie. Well, and honestly, it's one of the most beautiful experiments, and one of the most. When you look at it, you go, "This is this truly is a massive testament to human ingenuity." Really, is it's just so genius. So there was a guy called Andrei Sakharov who was actually, when you read about him, he's a Nobel Prize-winning peace activist, Russian dissident legend. Wow. In 1967, he pointed out that there w- there should be certain conditions at the at the right of the Big Bang that would could produce more matter than antimatter. In other words, dif- uh, produce them at different rates. And he set about putting the list of conditions that would need to be met for that to happen. And one of the sort of big pillars of that theory is that there should be this cp violation now we know that cp violation happens in quarks like kaons but that's way too small to support that that sort of that that amount of change uh, isn't enough to explain all the matter and antimatter disparity so it's it's not enough right um so cp violation has just not been observed in non-quark elementary particles uh, with, with enough certainty until maybe now. It's what I've been um, saying for years. Yeah, so they, they're they looking for it not to be happening in the quark region, but more in the lepton sector. Oh,
0: finally. And then,
2: then if you get it in the lepton sector, you get this thing called leptogenesis, mm-hmm. which, which does give you this... Um, does give you this enough of an effect, probably, <laughs> to give you more matter than antimatter. Mm. So here's the really cool thing. So experiments since 1990 have shown that neutrinos, these amazing, amazing, um, almost massless particles that travel insanely fast and uh, just don't interact with any. En- they just don't interact with anything, so they're incredibly hard to spot even though that you you're just surrounded by them right now like your cup of coffee is filled yeah. with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these things if not hundreds of millions of them whizzing around but you just ne- never feel them you never see them they don't interact because they're almost massless in fact they thought they were massless but, but their mass actually has sort of three different uh varieties oh. and it's not even connected to the uh, to these flavors, and and the mass actually can take on different values, and it seems to their masses are like a sort of quantum state. But anyway, uh, this is more about the kind of flavor that these neutrinos have. Their kind of leptonic flavor, which that that actually flips between electron flavor, muon flavor, and tau flavor.
0: What's your favorite Whilst
2: flavor? I think uh, tau flavor is my yeah, favorite. Yeah, me too, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sort of flip it in between all those different states whilst in flight. Now, it gets extra complicated because neutrinos are moving oh, so thank fast. because right up till now, I mean, <laughs> I know <laughs> exactly three what's three. going on. <laughs> uh, while in flight, Jamie, you kind of uh, neutrino, it does, it because it's almost going at the speed of light, um, mm. it's. Frame of reference, time-wise, is completely different to ours. So we think it's taken a fraction of a second from to go from one place to another. It thinks it's taken even shorter. Oh, yeah. So it's like everything is super slowed down for a, in in the neutrinos frame of reference. But anyway. As they're flying around, they're s- switching between these different flavors of electron, muon, and tau, and that's both neutrinos and antineutrinos. So you get some antineutrinos being electron antineutrinos, and then suddenly they flip to muon antineutrinos and so on, right? Now, there is an experiment because there's been some thought that maybe the antineutrinos and the neutrinos behave slightly differently and that they switch between these different flavors in different ways and different amounts of time. And this would be the first case of CP violation in a kind of, le- in the lep- the lepton sector. Uh-huh. Uh, and which would, ex- which could then go on to explain this disparity between man- matter and antimatter. Right. So, There's this absolutely amazing experiment called the Tokai to Kamioka, the T2K experiment. And basically what happens there is there is a muon neutrino uh, beam maker at at a place near Tokai, which is on the east coast of Japan, where they make really good strat copies <laughs> uh, yeah uh, j- uh there's the jet there's also uh, along with a uh a guitar factory there's also j park facility mm. now this j park facility creates this beam of muon neutrinos and blasts it 295 kilometers through the earth to uh to kamioka observatory. Now beneath Kamioka observatory is the Super Kamioka andy neutrino observatory. Ooh. And that is 3000 feet below Mount Ikino near the city of Haida. Wow. And yes, it's 295 kilometers away and and to see this detector it is one of the most beautiful objects on earth but I'll talk about it a little bit later on cuz I cuz it's because the way that it detects neutrinos is is absolutely amazing. Now, can we get a photo? Oh yes, the photo will be definitely in in the notes. It's it's one of the most incredible buildings there are. Okay. It's it's a it's like a lake. Well, I'll I'll explain it a little bit later on. But um, I wanted to just get onto the the fact that at J Park at uh, the Tokai facility, you have uh, that the beam gets measured about two hundred and eighty meters away from where they're being produced, and the neutrino flux, i.e. whether they're in these various different flavors, they, it gets tasted. It gets tasted by this detector. It's like, hmm, they're this flavor, right? But then they're obviously detected again over at the Super Kamiokande mm. neutrino observatory, and their flavors are uh, then tested again. They're little tongues all out there tasting the neutrinos as they go through. And of course, if you look at the difference between the two, you can start working out whether these, what the probability of these things change flip-flopping from one to the other and what's been happening. So the big question is: do neutrinos and antineutrinos change their flavour at different rates? Right? That's the big question. And this paper has used a long baseline neutrino and antineutrino. Observations. so in other words they've been observing them for a very long time at this t2k experiment and yes it indicates that there is cp violation in these leptons these leptonic flavors of neutrinos wow and this is the first time i mean this it's been observed before but it could have been just a statistical bump Now, this is where it has got up to three sigma certainty. So this is why this paper is being published. Three sigma certainty means that there's only a 0.3% chance that this could just be a statistical bump in the data, right? So that's still a little bit dangerous. You can't call it a discovery, but what it does do, it makes it the first official evidence of a imbalance between neutrinos and anti-neutrinos, which, as far as I can tell, is absolutely massive. Yeah, sure. So, Yeah. Now, the Americans have got uh, another experiment called NOVA, which is very similar to this, and that's also getting very close to this three sigma uh, certainty level. And even if you added those results up you still wouldn't get to discovery status. So discovery status, which gets you the Nobel Prize, um, that is basically five sigma. And five sigma is zero point zero 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 six percent chance that there's a fluke in the data set. In other words, just so extremely unlikely you you can rule it out. It's called a discovery. And they're currently building the next generation of equipment to do precisely that, to get this data set up to that level. And that's called Dune and T2HK. Um, but the, the amazing thing about this is that this this neutrino anti-neutrino imbalance has actually happened much faster than they scientists thought it would mm. uh, which means that actually um they actually are a- as different as possible as they're a- as different as much as possible as they could possibly be within the standard model so actually that's that's for once the scientists have had a bit of a kind of Um, easy break there but unfortunately jamie this is only half the story all this has done is hint at this cp violation but it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the story that leads to antimatter and matter being imbalanced at the start of the universe so that all that all hinges on whether neutrinos are Majorana or Dirac <laughs> particles. What? Okay. <laughs> We're almost there. We're almost there. All the observed neutrinos that you see are left-handed, i.e. their spins are going in the opposite direction to their, oh, anti-parallel to their momenta. Mm-hmm. And anti-neutrinos are right-handed, What's really odd is you don't see the other-handedness of of each of those particles, the the neutrinos and the antineutrinos. You would expect to see a, a right-handed neutrino. Now, what could be happening is that antineutrinos and neutrinos are in fact the same particle, oh. and that and that yeah, a neutrino is the anti-particle of of, of a neutrino itself. Now, this would make it a Majorana. Uh, A Majorana, named after an Italian physicist who proposed it, type particle, and uh, not a Dirac particle. And this is one of the biggest unanswered questions in physics, really. But if it is a Majorana particle, then there might be these different varieties of neutrinos that were around at the beginning of the universe uh, in the Big Bang. Wow. Wow. Okay. These are heavy versions that basically decay down into these into the neutrinos that we see now, the lightweight ones. You get the heavy ones at the start of the universe and and looking at the maths of the standard model, what happens you get this leptogenesis which basically means that there's because of this asymmetry that we're seeing in in antineutrinos and neutrinos, this will tie into this asymmetry between uh, when leptogenesis happens and you actually get this asymmetry between leptons and antileptons that then decay f- further into this baryonic matter that we see and if 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 you have this disparity between the two you end up with more matter than antimatter and of course they've been looking and trying to solve this problem about whether neutrinos are Majorana or Dirac particles, but that's been incredibly difficult to achieve. And they, you know, there's lots and lots of big e- and beautiful experiments trying to find this, but it it relies on the half life of beta decay because if you have this double double beta decay, which is basically where a um, two neutrons turn into two protons. But if if the neutrino is its its own antiparticle, it can be used again to turn a neutron into a proton itself, and so you don't see any neutrinos coming out of that reaction out of this double beta decay. And if that's the case, then yes, it is a margarine a uh, margarine, margarana, a majorana particle. And but yes, this beta decay could be taking trillion a few trillion trillion or a few thousand trillion trillion years of half-life to actually see it so you have to have enormous amounts of material and very sensitive equipment to try and capture this one event of double beta decay that would show either way whether the marjorana or dirac particle neutrino are you basically saying Matt, it's bloody difficult to find that turns out that it's the opposite to this, yes, yeah, CP violation, uh, is that it's turning out to be incredibly difficult to find. Mm. So on one hand, they've had a lucky break, and on the other hand, it's been a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. So basically, we're one step closer to, to, to knowing because we can see that this changing flavour uh is showing that we've got CP via- violation, almost certainly, but not certain enough at uh, this leptonic level. But we need to know whether this thing is a, a major type particle before we can say, yes, this is it, we have discovered it. So let's hold on, please. So, yeah, Jamie, I want to just... Because this super cameo candy um, observatory is so special, I just thought I'd just say how it worked. Let's do it. You 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 can see the picture now. It's, it's stunning, like, and yeah, you see the two little people in the boat. Yeah, <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's, it's just insane. Anyway, so yes, it's uh it's a it's a massive underground lake. So you've got this. Massive stainless steel tank, 40 meters high and 40 meters in diameter, filled with 50,000 tons of ultra-pure water. And lining the walls of this tank, and this is what makes it so beautiful, a 13,000 photomultiplier tubes. And they they detect this thing called Cherenkov radiation. So when a neutrino interacts with electrons of nuclei of water, that's this ultra-pure water, it can produce an electron or positron that moves faster than the speed of light in water. And although that's still lower than the speed of light in a vacuum, thank goodness, or else we'd be into new physics yet again, it creates the optical equivalent of a sonic boom, and that creates this cone of Cherenkov radiation light and, and it's from that that the sensor can detect the direction and flavour of the incoming neutrino. That is so beautiful. I can't stop staring at that photo. Yeah, no, it's insane. It's such a beautiful... We will put mechanism. that up
0: on our Instagram
2: accounts. This could be a very, very important paper, and it certainly gives scientists uh, the will to carry on down this road. Of course, it could still be a dead end. Wow, what an incredible story. Yeah, 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 big time. Jamie, would you like to hear my conversation with Mr Kelvin Long? I've never wanted anything more. Well, a coupé. Roll it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace in back into space. So I am joined on the podcast by Kelvin Long, who's a fellow fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, who represents the Interstellar Research Centre and has been involved with uh, lots and lots of various different space-related institutions and and others outside of that. Uh, A bit of a polymath. Uh, Welcome to the show, Kelvin.
1: How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yes, like everyone else on lockdown, so uh, enjoying the sunshine there.
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm assuming you're enjoying lockdown a little bit because you're a prolific writer and you like to get down to studying stuff.
1: Yeah, that's uh, for sure. I I work from home, so um, it's pretty helpful to have my office at home. Um, However, I also have two small children, so they're very distracting and... uh, I have to lock the door and but I'm uh, managing to get a few papers written and uh, trying to get some books uh, progressed so that's that's helpful
2: yeah I think most people know you as a interstellar guy who was who was your inspiration and who is and and why did you get into researching interstellar travel
1: it's an interesting question I mean my own journey in space interest in space goes back to when I was 14 I went into a museum and the pottery in circle Trent and saw uh, an Apollo exhibit, so that started my interest in space. Um, s- jumping to Interstellar, I think really happened um, from two angles. The first was uh, when I was doing astrophysics masters at Queen Mary College. I met Martin Fogg, and uh, he was a uh, you know a prolific author and uh, pioneer of um, um, exoplanet sort of modelling and uh, free floating planets and so forth. and wrote the very first book on terraforming of Mars. And he introduced me to the British Interplanetary Society. Of course, once I discovered the BIS, I then uh, began to learn about Project Daedalus and meet Alan Bond and some of the others, Bob Parkinson, Jerry Webb from the Daedalus team. And that really got me to think about um, that whole field of interstellar and how different it was to interplanetary exploration. Um, In particular, um, I was interested in uh, doing some projects. Um, but I was quite young at the time. Um, so my first entrance was, uh, I'd done general relativity at university, which studied black holes and and cosmology. And uh, so I started jumping into uh, warp drive metrics um, because that was application of GR, first appeared in the field in 1994, Miguel Cubier. And, uh, but as I spent, after I spent a couple of years on, on warp drive, um, realising that it just breaks so many laws of physics and it's very difficult to try and build a warp drive, um, I got a bit more practical, and that's where the kind of genesis of the idea of Project Icarus came about. Um, and what I observed is when I was looking at the interstellar community, there wasn't really a lot going on at the time. Um, there was a couple of organizations that were sort of existing. The Tau Zero Foundation was the main one, um, run by Mark Millis, United States. Um, he used to work for NASA. and um, But they weren't really doing much. And the BIS itself wasn't really doing much in interstellar studies. So... And a lot of the people that have pioneered the field um, had either passed away or moved on. Recently, we just lost Freeman Dyson, who was one of the other pioneers in the field who I also knew. Um, So um, I really wanted to get some activity going in Interstellar to really pick up the energy in the field. um, And then think about building a collective community that focuses on the stars. And this was serendipitous because, of, of course, at the time, we started to get the exoplanet discoveries. Um, we started to find the first evidence of planets around other stars. Of course, now I've, I forget what the number is, but we must be over 3,000. So once you have um, planets, then the question is, well, how can we get there? Uh, this That's not to say that the only purpose of exploring space is to go to planets, but certainly that is a, an interesting factor. Um, and so and my journey really started from that, and I've been involved with lots of different um, interstellar organisations since Either co-founding them, founding them, or helping other organisations, and uh, it's been a, a an up and down emotional journey, I must say. But it's been very interesting, and um, I, f- I feel a bit like Paul um, Harrodell on the raft when he's trying to cross the Pacific to mm-hmm. to get um, to the Pacific Islands, Polynesian Islands, and and I feel like I didn't quite make the island. Like I kind of I crash landed somewhere, but I'm not quite where I want to be yet, and I look around me at what's going on in the field, and there's a lot of good work doing, but I still feel we're not quite going in the right direction to uh, bring interstellar studies into the mainstream. Um, and given that you know the things we're thinking about at the moment, such as the pandemic, which has really gripped the world, I think it's more more important to have a, a long term vision that goes beyond just what we're doing tomorrow or next year or even in a hundred years. Where are we get where do we want to be as a species in, in hundreds of years from now? And
2: so I think Interstellar has a role to play in that. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah I, I couldn't agree more. I was listening to Andrian, who was Carl Sagan's wife, pretty much saying exactly that sentiment about we need to decide what we want to do in the future so that we can actually draw a map to get there. And uh, yeah, obviously something like Interstellar travel is, is such an interesting concept. It'd be really good to outline the real problems of Interstellar travel what you know kind of the the key points of why it's so difficult
1: yeah that's a good question actually um unfortunately i mean i love science fiction i've got an enormous science fiction collection i I should have mentioned when you are talking about who influenced me rc clark was one of the big influences on me i read all of his books um and uh you know many of them featured star drives so that got to be just in the technology um I think the problem with science fiction is it makes it look easy. It's a bit different with Clark because he actually included some of the physics and engineering in his design, such as does Discovery 2 in 2001. Um, but suddenly Star Trek, um, you know, um, Gene Roddenberry, um, which, um, you know, there's a beautiful book, um, The Making of Star Trek, where he describes his, his requirement for the Starship, where he didn't want it to have any engines or anything like that or fire coming out the back. Um, and... Uh, so that's really um, created our perceptions of what going to the stars would be like, FTL travel. And so with Star Wars, those are the two big sort of uh, poles in the tent in science fiction films, at least. And uh, unfortunately, it's not quite like the sound barrier. I mean, the sound barrier, which was broken in uh, 1947, 14th October by Chuck Yeager, that's a very different phenomenon. But I think uh, people tend to think that the speed of light is just another barrier that can be broken. But there are fundamental reasons of physics why we can't go faster than the speed of light. However, um, there is an opening there because uh, Einstein's physics tells us that um, actually space itself can go faster than the speed of light. It's called superluminal. And that's, in fact, what happened at at the Big Bang expansion, superluminal expansion of space. And so, um, but when we actually get to the nuts and bolts of technology, like the Voyager probes, um, you know how difficult was it? We, with 1977, we sent those Voyager probes, and they're only at 130, 140 AU. The nearest stars are sort of 240, 50,000 AUs AU away, um, Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri um, um, stars. So, um, in order to, to get there in say even a century, you'd have to travel at something like 2,500. AU per year, and AU being the mean distance between the Earth and the Sun. The Voyager probes are traveling something like three and a half AU per year, mm. so several orders of magnitude in scale. If the velocity is several orders of magnitude in scale, that implies also for the power systems, they have to be, you know, instead of just multiple hundreds of watts, which is what something like the Voyager probes would use, which run out in 2025 because the power degrades, um, you would need something else to power the system, uh, maybe a much bigger nuclear reactor. And it, it also has other problems like communication problems, um, because now you're communication over lo- much longer distances. Um, when you look at something like energetic reactions like Daedalus, um, designed by the Daedalus team, um, Alan Bond and so forth, um, this was using fusion fuel. And uh, you actually look at the numbers that's required to push something like that to the stars. And it comes out something like 40 megawatts per kilogram, um, which is just phenomenal. Um, you know, and we're talking about terawatts, jet powers. These are the sort of metrics we use in propulsion terminology. Um, and this is just when when I give talks at NASA, for example, and I've spoken to all of the all of the NASA laboratories, I always make sure I give these numbers because it's my way of saying to them, "Look, I know it's really hard. I'm not up here pretending that we can build a Starship tomorrow. I know that when you run the numbers, it looks very problematic. And I, I never say impossible. I, will, I just say problematic. However, um. When you look at the advances that have happened in the last few decades, um, I think it's certainly the case that we can't no longer say it's impossible, and nobody can say that, um, and as you know, there's a project, Starshot, which perhaps we'll get on to talk about later, um, which is an active project at the moment to actually send something out there. So um, I remain optimistic that over the, this century, um, and my personal goal has always been to work towards a, before 2100 launch date, is that we will be sending our first starships towards the nearest stars. Um, but, you know, if we take that Polynesian model again, as Freeman Dyson used to refer to, um, there's other things in between. You know, there's the rest of the planets in our solar system, as uh, possibly brown dwarfs or uh, other um, dwarf planets that are out there, uh, free-floating planets which we can explore, the Oort cloud, the Kuiper belt, So these are precursor missions, which we also need to be launching along the way.
2: Yeah. So in terms of the most promising near goal interstellar travel, would you say that is something like the uh, Starshot um, type of propulsion?
1: Yeah, so Starshot, as you know, is a directed energy beaming method. Um, we'll talk about specifics of the technology perhaps a bit later. but um, And it's currently costed to be of order, um, I think it's $10 billion, the last number I saw, to actually launch the first um, flight of the, of a gram-scale probe. So this thing is grams in mass. Um, but actually, there's other projects underway. Um, I've been involved uh, the last couple of years uh, with John Hopkins' uh, applied physics laboratory on a 1,000 AU mission. Originally, there was a proposal in the 1990s from JPL uh, for a 1,000 AU mission, and that unfortunately didn't go anywhere. That was called TAU, 1,000 Astronomical Unit Mission. Um, But the Johns Hopkins people were trying to resurrect this idea, and certainly, I mean, the idea of, we used to talk about 200 AUs, but given that the Voyagers are effectively there, philosophically, you know, they're sort of 140 AU-ish. So what's the scientific advantage to sending something to only 200 AU? Um, okay, so you're you're taking measurements of the same particle populations, charged particles, the plasma and heliosphere, and so forth, which is very good because it helps you to understand your data a bit better. Um, and we want to understand better the structure of the heliosphere bubble. Um, but really, we want to know what's beyond that, what's outside that heliosphere bubble, um, what's in the cloud, and uh, the 1,000 AU is just a good number to try and go for. And certainly, technologically. If we wanted to send one, if let's say we had a programme to launch one within a few years' time and it was government funded or privately funded um, and there was a, a decent budget of all the billions to do it, um, we could certainly launch that. We know how to do it today. Um, it's just really, it's not necessarily about the propulsion system, it's more about the payload, what you actually want to send. And this is one of the issues with Project Starshot, of course, because Project Starshot is so small in mass, grand scale, um, the question is, what sort of payload can you fit on that? Because it's so tiny, and what's the value of the science you're doing, um, and and therefore does it justify the economics?
2: Well, yeah. Can you describe? Yeah, e- even though the propulsion isn't Im- important, can you describe a little in a little bit more detail that that thousand AU mission, what it actually looks like, or or is that something that's not really pieced together? You've just got some numbers, or is there a specific?
1: look there's, there's no design at the moment but what there is is that they're basing it on the the pluto new horizons um idea as a reference um so it's something like a, a 30 watts per 30 kilograms uh, mission um so it's something like a new horizons so maybe 500 kilograms in total mass um that you would send out to a thousand au so it may be do a flyby of one of the uh, the other Either one of the planets or one of the dwarf planets, like Eris or Ceres, or you know, or you know, there's speculation that there's an object that's much further out. There's Planet X. Um, so could we do some astronomical observations of that? Um, and certainly, um, in terms of justifying it, we only have to look at the images we had of Pluto, um, even from the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been a fantastic achievement. And you compare that to the images that New Horizons has taken mm. of Pluto and they're just not comparable i mean and it really does justify um, why we need to send probes i wrote a paper on this recently um published in jabers presented at the IAC in bremen uh last year i think it was a year before and uh arguing that you know there is an argument for why we should be sending probes and not just building big interferometers um but uh you know certainly um 1000 eu is is a good target distance and uh there's people been working on this idea for years. You know, Ralph McNutt, Cloud Maccone, um, have really been trying to push this mission. I would love to see um, European Space Agency um, or NASA co- collaborate together um, to get behind such a mission because it, it is viable today.
2: Obviously, when when you when you start talking of, uh, in you know in billions of dollars, and particularly when it gets to tens of billions of dollars, you, you're talking about you have a choice between something like the James Webb Telescope and a uh, 500 kilogram probe out to the outer solar system. So, uh, how do you weigh up the the science that's gained by each?
1: Well, I mean, in the, in the United States, they have uh, the Decadal Surveys, which is uh, every ten years they review um, what the science objectives are um, as national priorities. So that includes um, sort of galactic and um, planetary. Um, and heliospheric. Now, now currently, um, the, the Johns Hopkins study is a heliospheric um, decadal um, proposal. Um, so its main focus is on the plasma sheath, you know, understanding the solar heliosphere. Um, but it's an interesting one because you can also do some planetary science along the way, um, which, you know, is, you would end up having planetary sciences involved in that. Um, so I, I do think it has to be driven by the science um but you know there's also an argument for um getting out there and just seeing what's out there and, and making discoveries with things we didn't, didn't even know existed um i mean building a space telescope like um hubble or james webb and i, I i've been to Goddard and i saw uh, um james webb um telescope um, being um tested when it was there in the in the um huge um satellite sort of clean room. Um, but also, um, I was lucky enough to see the uh, solar probe being firmly tested in the vacuum chamber at Goddard at the same time, which is really cool because my myself and my family's names is all on, the, on that probe. So that's good to see that. Um, I, I think you do have to do, you know, um, a comparison of uh, the science benefits and then justify the costs. I don't think it's reasonable to just spend enormous amounts on something that doesn't give good science return. Having said that, Breakthrough um, Starshot, which is a pri- at the moment a completely financed, privately financed initiative. Um, you know, there's a hundred million at the moment being allocated. And Stephen Hawking was the sort of chief scientist on the board um, before he passed away for this project. And I'm on the advisory committee for Starshot. Um, that's uh, being led by Pete Warden, um, who's a former NASA Ames director, and uh, also Yuri Milner, who's the sponsor. And uh, that is privately financed. And it's, as I say, 100 million R&D money at the moment for the first sort of six, seven years. And that's making really good progress. Lots of good papers coming out, lots of universities involved in doing experiments. And uh, hopefully that will move forward towards um, a full-scale launch at some point, uh, maybe a precursor probe, a test mission, uh, maybe around the moon and back or something, You know, using laser beam technology. Um, Sometimes it takes private financing to do these things. I mean, just look at Elon Musk and SpaceX, what they're doing, which will have, you know, with the reusable rockets, will have a revolutionary effect on the rest of the, of the launch industry because what would it take to get the rest of the launch industry to, to look at those reusable rockets? Um, so if he brings the cost down to, I don't know, $1,000 per kilogram or something eventually, um, which is also what, you know, SSTO was attempting to do with Skylon in, in Britain, Um, this will have radical effects on the rest of the launch industry, which also means it's now cheaper to put telescopes in orbit. It's also cheaper to launch space probes. So it has an effect on the whole system. Um, I know Alan Bond's view has always been that you have to break that bottleneck. You have to bring that launch cost down first um, because mass-scale exploration of space is not going to happen unless you can do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, Musk... Musk has been talking about $300 per kilogram wow. for for Starship for Starship. So that which which is better than uh, the space elevator. So yeah. of, so, so that's that would be pretty phenomenal but
1: one, one thing we should say is that um although you know the name is, is kind of called Starship it's definitely not a Starship. No. <laughs> uh, by, by any definition it's not a Starship but you know um who am I uh, to question Elon Musk naming words so
2: <laughs> no, but I suppose it, it may it may facilitate starships. I, I I guess, but like you said, because we we it's it changes it changes the paradigm, doesn't it, of actually getting things out of Earth's gravity well, which is one of the sort of big big points. Now, while you were talking there, where I was I was thinking about this, uh, th- just the propulsion of Starship, where you've got a laser that's pushing something in at uh, uh, to you know relativistic speeds uh there is a connection isn't there between between interstellar flight and the any inter looking at it because the en- the the energy is so massive that's what what's required that uh, you essentially will always build something that becomes extremely dangerous and when i say extremely dangerous as in it it, it becomes an a, a weapon of mass destruction how How do you ever get round that that particular sort of problem because i can see with with starshot when when it actually comes to interstellar missions you're gonna need laser banks that that can be obviously used for nefarious <laughs> lots of other <laughs> ways you can use it and it and be, and it become dangerous
1: yeah you're you're right i mean I think it was uh Heinlein the science fiction author who said something like um any um advanced propulsion system can be turned into a weapon and it is true um i mean even daedalus um alan bond used to say you can never look at the daedalus engine because it's so luminous and so intense it would just blind you and never never mind being in front of it i mean you could so say you couldn't launch it from earth orbit which is why they launched it from um one of these moons of saturn in theoretically um so um Starship has the same problem it's directed energy of course the u.s has a long history with uh Star Wars program under President Reagan and so forth, and um, well, I mean, if you look at the original proposals for directed energy propulsion, uh, which really came out of uh, Robert Forward, who is a brilliant American physicist who unfortunately died, um, but he did such amazing work. He he was on a quest to find propellantless travel, so he was looking at antimatter to start with because that um, is much more efficient compared to say fusion. Um, but then he started to look at sails, then he started to look at lasers. And, and then also microwave beams, mazes. Um, and he um, really pushed the field. He even presented a paper, I think in 1976, uh, to the US Congress um, saying that we could build a program. And they said, when could we launch the first mission to the stars using this project? And he said, around year 2000. So he was very optimistic. And this was something like a one-tons probe it's called Star WISP. Um, but his, his architecture was based in Earth orbit. So, it was using these massive franel lenses to reconverge the, the beam because the beams will tend to diverge. There's something called Raleigh's Law. And uh, so, you have to recollimate the beam because once the beam starts to diverge, you no longer have full pressure on your surface. So, he would build these massive uh, frenal lenses, like 500,000 tons in orbit. So, that's an enormous scale project. Then, you have a laser which gets light from the sun, pushes this sow, uh, pre- pre- reconverges this beam, and then pushes on a one ton sow that's maybe. I forget the dimensions of it. Maybe ten kilometres across or something, and it pushes it to the stars. Um, But in in principle, I mean, if you look at the Gerald North studies in the nineteen seventies as well, um, they were talking about getting solar power from the sun. So similarly, you could use that same architecture to power the national grid or to push satellites. But you're right; you could also turn it on an enemy country. Uh, and take out an enemy country. So I think the complications with these issues is one of the reasons that Project Starshot controversially decided to um, not go for space-based launch. So their architecture is to have ground-based beaming. So you'd have an enormous array of beamers on the ground um, generating stuff like 100, to 200 gigawatts of power beamed up to a spacecraft in orbit, which has a cell which is only about three metres across, carrying a grand-scale payload. And In theory, you could you could shoot people's satellites down, but it will be difficult to, you know, um, fire that laser at a country because it's on the ground. Um, so um, that's one of the reasons I believe they they chose to to do that. They've also gone out of, out of their way to make um, Project Starshot international because they believe that there needs to be um, understandings and conventions in place and protocols. Um, you know, when you'd fire this thing, you'd have equivalent launch windows, just like rockets, they have launch windows. Um, and those launch windows would be determined by whose satellite is in orbit right now above us. Because you can't fire it if there's a satellite that's about to come over the horizon. So, and of course, with space getting very cluttered, that becomes more problematic, which means your window is probably gonna get shorter. But you know, in the architecture, these things only fire for a very short time. Um, you're talking about five, 10 minutes. Um, firing time, and uh, they accelerate the probe to something like ten thousand g um, at 20 to twenty percent the speed of light at sixty thousand kilometers per second. So if you can find a five to ten minute launch window, you could fire this thing. Um, there's also the risk of uh, you know people attacking the architecture on the ground and trying to misuse it. Um, terrorists, for example. So there's a whole bunch of security issues around um, this technology. Um, And so it does probably require, in the same way that a project like CERN was international or the International Space Station, by definition, is Mm. international, um, something like Breakthrough Starshot um, will probably be an international project. Um, It may be that there are primary partners involved, um, such as the United States, which is primarily leading the project. Um, But I don't see any reason why you wouldn't invite other countries in to be involved with it um, and for them also to fire their own experiments, their own probes with their own technology. And that is really exciting because now you allow for innovation in the probes themselves. You know, one of the things that justifies Project Starshot is min- continued miniaturization of electronics. And uh, you know, we're talking about launching this thing in maybe 20 years time. Um, and if Microelectronics if continues to follow Moore's law, then um, who knows what we can fit on such a tiny package.
2: Yeah, well, there's plenty of room, isn't there, down there, as Feynman said. So just to give people a, a kind of feel for how hard it is to get to another star, if you if you were to use conventional rockets, like if you were to use the space shuttle going mm-hmm. flat out with chem, chemical rockets, um, and it had to get to Proxima Centauri with just uh, in in a human lifetime say 80 years it had to get there conventional rockets it would need a fuel tank the size of the observable universe <laughs> and i always think that just that says everything it just the amount of energy that's required to push push you in a reasonable time frame such unbelievably vast dis- distances it's just the the vastness isn't it that that's just mind-blowing and almost incomprehensible compared to even the size of the solar system which in itself is incomprehensible so with something like starshot when you send a small gram probe to try and to get there with this enormous amount of energy uh, the the first things that, that pop into my head is how does the probe itself survive 10 minutes of this intense energy and how does it just survive the journey? Because it, it's not just empty space, is it? It's got to uh, traverse space that's bound to have, I mean, anything of any <laughs> any size is going to rip that thing to tiny pieces. So how, how do you get around that?
1: Yeah, so just, just a quick comment on your other um, comment, first of all. Um, the, the problem with chemical technologies, of course, is it's fundamentally limited to about 500 people um, meters per second exhaust velocity, which is a fundamental restriction on its performance. So, um, yes, fortunately, I've done a lot of work on uh, particle bombardment. Um, When I joined Project Starshot, uh, my capacity is actually to be a member of the advisory team, which basically means don't do any work, just advise us and come to meetings, which is really fun, You know, great fun meetings, really good discussions. And we discuss all, all the sort of proposals that are being made and how we can move the project forward and so forth. Um, but as a, as a physicist, my nature is to, to do calculations. So I jumped into the particle bombardment issue um, because uh, when um, the project was launched, Yuri Milner announced 19 sort of technical engineering and physics problems we needed to solve. And one of them is, you know, as this thing is flying through space, what's the erosion of it? Um, and that erosion is really um, down to two uh, um, factors. The first is, uh, is dust itself. As enormous amount of dust out there, and the second is to charge particles. So the hydrogen, helium, um, electrons, whatever else is out there, um, and so they all act to erode, erode the structure, and they also potentially um, can be, you know, they can charge the structure and cause flip switching, as we know from conventional space missions. Um, instances have actually happened. Um, if an electron gets inside inside a microelectronic circuit, it can flip switch it. So maybe you'd end up with a, an engine firing, some you know, before you intended that to happen. So, um, but what I found is that actually the um, the biggest effect is the dust. Um, there are particles out that we believe as big as five, as, I think it's fifty nanograms in mass, um, which is pretty big. And these things are microns across um, in size, um, but when they hit your spacecraft, which is moving at twenty percent speed of light. Um, you know, this potentially can have a devastating impact. It's like a little miniature bomb going off. Um, but what you can do is you can look at the particle distributions because there's an average um, mass of particles, dust particles, or mean, and there's uh, the smallest and there's the largest. And what you find, of course, is that there's less of the largest and more of the smallest, and there's an mean between them. And so you can play a statistics game. And uh, I think what you do is it's not the fact that you just launch one of these things. You can launch many of them. Because once the architecture's in place, you can just launch thousands of these in, in principle. And then the probability of you getting through is quite high. Um, so you have to accept that a certain fraction of them will be lost um, because they will be hit by a large dust particle. Um, but a certain fraction of them will get through. What that fraction is, I don't yet know. Um, because it really depends on, um, you know, our knowledge of the interstellar medium is pretty good but there's still a lot we don't know about it. Um, we've got an idea of what its matter density is, what the proportion of particles to dust is, and so forth. Um, but this is one of the reasons why we need the 1,000 AU mission, and, and the post Voyagers, um, because we could really um, you know, start to take some better measurements. Um, you know, One of my concerns about the, the Voyager probe, very successful, but I learned that, um, for example, the magnetic field measurements, the actual on board were designed to measure magnetic fields around Jupiter, uh, the gas giant Jupiter, um, and those magnetic fields are quite large. And so the sensitivity of the instruments were designed to measure large B fields. But, of course, when we're talking about B fields in the interstellar medium, they're much smaller. And what I discovered is that um, the actual, what's called the standard distribution, um, the, the, uh, the, if you like the margin of error on those measurements is what's called one sigma, which is very low. In other words, uh, we have the magnetic field measurements from the interstellar medium, but we have low confidence that those are giving us an accurate picture. Um, and so we need to send another probe or more probes um, to actually <clears throat> characterise that data a, bit, a lot better so that when we come to launch in Starshot, we know exactly what we're flying through. Is
2: Are there any numbers when it comes... Because I'm thinking if you're launching thousands of these probes, how expensive is the actual launch of a probe in, in terms of switching on the laser beam and working it for 10 minutes what's the cost of that compared to the cost of building this tiny little probe presumably it's yeah. the laser that's more expensive than the probe yeah, at this the, point.
1: The, the actual cost of the probe is is tiny um it's um the the biggest the biggest cost by far is the laser um <clears throat> the problem if you look at the moment um so, so we talked about moore's law um mm-hmm. in electronics and we know roughly where we need to be in twenty years' time with that technology to get more instrumentation on board the, the tiny little probes. So these things, could in principle, could be as small as a grain of sand with a three-meter sail pushing them. So at the moment, the cost of lasers is something like one hundred dollars per watt. Uh, forgive me for using dollars, but yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it's of order, so you can yeah. use pounds and dollars. Um, <clears throat> so what we need to do to make to bring the cost of the flight down to about ten billion dollars is we need the cost of the laser to come down to about five cents per watt. So you can see that's an enormous reduction in cost. But that's over the next 20 years. And uh, the guy that's really pioneered a lot of the studies on this and was one of the founders of Project Starshot is Phil Lubin from University College, Santa Barbara, California, Santa Barbara. And he's uh, um, done some extrapolation studies and he believes that um, the cost of lasers will come down to that sort of level over the next two decades. Um, and that then makes the, the mission viable. Um, if we can't, then, you know, the total cost of the flight, in terms of building the architecture, at least, just to get one flight, it then goes up. And so it's difficult to justify it. So you, you're really, you're, you are dependent upon that. There's three kind of uh, holes in the tent for Project Starshot. One is the miniaturization electronics. The other is the laser, getting the cost down and, and being able to, no one's ever built a gigawatt power laser. That's the other thing. Got to build gigawatt power lasers. And and thirdly, it's the array itself. Because remember, um, we're not talking about one laser. Uh, we're talking about potentially hundreds of, of, of these lasers, all, all converging at a point. Um, this is called a phase laser array. Um, and it would work in a similar way to say um, fiber electronics, um, the way, way f- f- fiber um, uh, communications technology. Um, so we to converge that, that light signal um, onto the spacecraft. Um, one of the other issues you mentioned was the possibility of uh, ablating the spacecraft, the cell itself. Um, Greg Matloff, is one of the members of the advisory committee, has done a lot of good work on the possibility of using graphene technology. Um, and there is, you know, some belief that um, if you make a cell, uh, you know, if you think about solar cells um, from the sun, um, they require high reflectivity. So all the light that's hitting it wants to basically be bounced back off. Um, that way you get two times the push. That's the momentum that pushes the cell forward. Um, well, with these graphene cells, and potentially. Um, you can reflect a lot of that energy, and um, so there's um, a lot of work being done in graphene cell technology, um, and that would allow you to absorb the high temperatures as well, which may be thousand kelvin uh, from these lasers, um, so that you don't completely um, irradiate it.
2: The other thing, of course, is you've got this, you've got these tiny little interstellar probes now that are whizzing their way across interstellar space, but once they get to their targets. There's, there's no slowing down, is there? They're, they're just going to whiz past the targets and you've got a very small window of opportunity to do science. So what, what are the problems around that particular part of this? Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah you're right. Um, it is a flyby mission only. Um, I mean, we had the same problem in project Icarus, um, building on project Daedalus. Project Daedalus was also a flyby only. It flew through Barnastar in principle in four days. And, you know, this is a, a massive structure. Um, we decided when we started Project Icarus, which is a fusion successor to Daedalus, that we would decelerate. We've demonstrated on paper we can decelerate into full orbital insertion. I think our argument is that um, it, in order to justify the cost of such a mission, you have to be able to put um, you know orbiting satellites into in place observers. Um, you have to put um, atmospheric penetrators in and ground landers. Um, because then you can um, visit all of the planets planets in that system, um, and you can get so much science. You can look for evidence of microbes or whatever, Um, look at the geology in much more detail, get through the cloud layers. A flyby probe is so limited, um, but, you know, Starshot, um, it'd be very difficult to try and decelerate these probes. There has been work done on looking at the deceleration. Um, There was a paper, I think only a couple of years ago, um, talking about the possibility of Decelerating them in the uh, atmosphere of a planet, but I'm, I'm not sure that works. Um, the fundamental problem is these things are moving at 60,000 kilometers per second. Mm. They have enormous amounts of energy. I mean, you just do the half mv squared calculation. You see, you've got these are like little bombs coming in. Um, and it, I mean, if in terms of stars, for example, um, if you wanted to do gravity system around a star, your spacecraft needs to be going at a comparable velocity to the star in order to benefit. Um, so you probably want to be going something like 500km per second or less in order to get any benefit from the gravity assist. So gravity assist is ruled out. Um, so really, these are flyby by probes. Um, but, you know, um, the current um, architecture was that we just want to take a photograph of an exoplanet close up. I mentioned the difference between Hubble and New Horizons in terms of what we got for Pluto. So that argument is certainly sound in terms of if you just take one photograph of an exoplanet, you should get a much better image, provided you can get the data back, um, than you would from long baselines interferometers in in Earth orbit. Um, But there is a cost issue. Um, But, you know, taxpayers are not funding this at the moment. This is a privately financed initiative funded by Silicon Valley billionaires mainly. Um, And I guess they can choose to spend their money how they want to, and thank God they are. Um, But, you know, I I can see a, a point in the future where government might get involved um, in helping to fund some of these projects, if they start to show a significant science benefit,
2: yeah, i mean I'm. I mean, I always struggle to think of because you're right with the electronics side of things uh, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and I, I don't doubt that in 20 years' time we'll have uh, electronics that are capable of doing some of the the uh, electrical side of things. But there, but the things that 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 i do find hard to wrap my head around is with things like you say just taking a photograph of 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 a of a of a star as you whiz past or a planetary system as you whiz past it is the actual camera itself you know it, it seems that that kind of technology isn't isn't really that shrinkable when it when it's all about resolution there is you know there's there's very specific math- mathematical equations about the resolution that you can get with with aperture and things like that how does how does that work what's the work that's yeah. done on
1: that um i'll have to pass on that because i'm not a i'm not an optics person uh, camera person i know that when we when i was in uh initiative for stellar studies which i co-founded with rob Swinney, um we did a project called andromeda um project which um is actually how i got involved in project starshot um And we did that study for Project Starshot before they went live. Um, And they basically said to me, um, I had a meeting with uh, Pete Warden in San Francisco, and he said, okay, so we're launching this project. Uh, We're looking at launching this project. 10% of the speed of light is what he told me at the time. Um, I didn't know later it was going to be 20%. Um, Something that's grand scale in mass, go away and see what you can design. So me and my team, in three days, we produced a report. And Bearing in mind, I was flying from San Francisco back to. I got stranded in New York for the night, and then back to England. On the plane, I was calculating pen and pencil calculating out, and my team was all calculating. We had about fifteen people involved in it, and uh, by the Tuesday morning, um, we had a de- we had a paper on their desk, um, and we managed to get the whole mass. We got, I think it was four hundred twenty grams was our probe mass, um, moving at ten percent speed of light, pushed by a one gigawatt laser in Earth orbit. Okay, and what we did is we had a segmented lens array. So instead of having one collimating lens, we had ten of them going out to Mars, about two AU, um, and that was to recollimate the beam. And that was using architecture um, created by Jeff Landis, who's a, a NASA um, Glenn um, scientist. And uh, we demonstrated that was possible in principle. Um, but what we did is we stuck a big, quite a big camera on it. Um, you know, the, our, our systems were kind of wafer size, like a stamp size, mm. uh, so 420 grams. But uh, their initial response was, you're too mass heavy, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> we went away stripped because we had lots of instrumentation on it as well because we were driven by the science. We stripped off a lot of the science. We managed to get the whole thing down to about 25 grams or so, or 28 grams. Um so i I don't know I mean it, the, you know what cameras can do in the future um i don't I don't know you're right I mean it because it's all about collecting photons right on the surface mm. so um if you have a smaller aperture, presumably you're collecting less photons per surface area so um I don't know I mean <clears throat> maybe there's things you can do where you have several of these and they're kind of linking up together and and you're combining the images um um, I, I would say that that's not got a lot of attention because it's considered a low priority because it's really just a microelectronics issue um, but, but an optical issue as well um, and I'm not qualified to speak on the shrinking of telescopes to that side
0: yeah.
1: um, but you know I it, our focus has been on the big poles in the tent which is the you know can we build a laser that big, are we going to vaporise the cell, can we survive the journey. And um, and the next once we've ticked all those boxes and we think we can do those things in principle, then it's like okay, what's the probe going to do when it gets there? Mm. Can we take the images? um Can we get the signal back? And that's another issue. I was going to say
2: of- that was the big one I was going to ask next. Is yeah, what in terms of because you're now at an interstellar distance, getting a signal back, you'll you'll need quite a lot of energy to do that so with uh, with, a, with something gram-sized it's it's quite hard to perceive of, of where that energy comes from.
1: Yeah so um, we've had a lot of interesting discussions about that and because uh, uh, when I give talks on Project Starshot it's invariably the question I get the most is uh, you know how are you going to get the information back and I, I'm not a comms guy I can, I can just about do a link budget calculation I'm a propulsion guy mainly Um but, you know, the, the guys at Breakthrough are confident they can do it. I mean, we, we got David Messerschmitt involved. He's one of the world authorities on uh, interstellar communications. And he um, he's written several massive papers on it. And they believe they can do it. I mean, the, you're talking about the power of the signal is something like 20 watts, which is incredibly small power. Um, but so maybe you're, you know, you've got to try and pick that up over, over light years distance. Um, but what they are planning to do you won't be using the uh, deep space network probably um what you would be using is the laser beam itself. so the laser beam um you know is it basically doubles as a receiver. so you've got this huge ground space um station of, of these lasers on on uh, on earth maybe in in the desert somewhere and there's hundreds of them and together they could also in principle pick up that signal um collectively. Um, so that's the current thinking is that they would double as a receiver. Um, <clears throat> there may be other ideas, like you could um, you could put a receiver on the on the quiet surface of the moon, maybe on mm. the backside and try and pick a signal up for it where it's quiet. Um, but you know, or you could, or you could, if you had a probe about a thousand AU, maybe that could play a role in bootstrapping that signal to boost it up to a larger amplitude. Um, it's not something, that the communications is not something that the guys have focused on with too much priority early on. As I say, the focus was on the SAO and the laser uh, because the SAO, which is, is another issue in terms of stability of the SAO. But um, <clears throat> I think that, that emphasis has now changed and they, they now have formed a communications subcommittee. Yeah. discussing it. But from the initial discussions over the last two years, they seem confident that they can pick up that signal, uh, which is amazing. I'm just not privy to all the, the details of yeah. the specs. Um,
2: Yeah, while you were sitting, I was having the idea based on something I was talking about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago is as it's going so fast past the star, it will get to the point where it's at the gravitational focal point of that star, which, of course, you could then use to transmit the signal and have it amplified by the star itself back to where we are. But uh, I guess yes,
1: and that's that's at about a thousand AU, by
2: the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, that would be uh, I guess <clears throat> one way of doing it. But um, yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here. My gut my gut feeling is that if we want to do interstellar missions, that we need big craft to do it. That there's going to be at the end of the day, I think that it's going to have to carry its own own propulsion. Be big. So that you've got this enormous power for doing things like sending signals back or like doing uh uh doing inserting yourself in orbit or or going on to do other missions et cetera et cetera where where does that then take us is is that something that's being looked at sort of the actual vehicle itself being the having the propulsion on board and the technology and all all the science et cetera on board
1: yes it is um I mean, you're right. I mean, projects like Starshot and other ones, ventures we might launch, are really exploration missions. Um, They're not certainly not colonization missions. They're just really taking the temperature of the water, if you like. Um, They're telling us a little bit about what's out there, improving our our knowledge of the interstellar medium or the properties, um, confirming that, yeah, we think there's an exoplanet and now we've got a picture of it. This will help start, it's, it's reconnaissance, right? So ultimately, Um, humankind has to um, build a starship and get out there Um, you know it probably wouldn't be like um, Enterprise, um, you know, with a big warp drive, but it it may be similar in that you would have literally crew members with families on board I mean, um, let's assume that we don't achieve any life extension, um, you know um, as some people are working on at the moment and we only live to sort of 80 100 if we're lucky Um, then the first the first crew that's on board, maybe they're in their 40s, 30s or 40s. There's an argument you might want to go younger. But certainly, um, you know, to get to the stars, it's sort of even 100 years. As I say, you have to go incredibly fast, um, 2,500 AU per year. And um, <clears throat> But even when you get there, you, you know, your crew has died. And so now you've got a new generation. So you have to have a, a, a generation of babies born on board. And then you have to train them into to to run the ship to prepare the power systems to you know um repair the communications and to do the astronomy and explain to them why, why we're out here you know and what what i find really interesting is that um i mean it's it's when we look at history all the great adventures of history you know whether it's columbus who discovered america you know he didn't discover it of course so there was lots of people living living in america when he when he got there but um all of the great, you know, mentioned Contiki and Fort Howard, um, you know, that sort of mm. mission. Um, all the great adventures of history, There's when you think about all the, all the adventures we still have to have, you know, whether it's, you know, in the past climbing Everest, in the future we're going to climb Olympus Mons on Mars. This is a great adventure that still awaits us. Um, and without doubt, it probably will, will be full of tragedy. People will die uh, because some missions won't be successful and some some will be successful um what i find interesting actually the idea of a world ship this which is what we're talking about and again alan bond and tony martin produced some of the first pioneering papers on this they looked mainly at the propulsion and the habitat mass how much atmosphere you need and so forth um but what i find really interesting is <clears throat> whenever i get into discussions of world ships it's not the technology that dominates the discussions it's the social culture issues it's like what kind of a governance structure would you have that works because can we say with confidence that we've tested all of, the, uh, all of the governance structures on Earth at the moment, all our different ideologies, that we know which one works? Um, you know, Because uh, so far, they're not all, they've all got their down, downfalls. And um, yeah, we look at how we're handling the, uh, the COVID-19 situation. It uh, mm. doesn't necessarily reflect well on our governance models. So how would you manage uh, a starship of maybe 1,000 people? Um, how would you police it? Um how what, what would happen if there was a pandemic that broke out on the starship? right? Are You're you gonna isolate everyone inside their tiny little crew cabins. How much you know how much support mass do you need? This is why the studies by Gerald O'Neill in 1970 are very important because um, I think he concluded you need something like 65 tons uh, per person of supporting mass in terms of water, food, um, oxygen, um, for a space habitat like an O'Neill colony. Uh, the Russians have done studies. Uh, they conclude, typical the Russians, you could get away with a lot less, like fifteen uh, <laughs> tons per kilogram. But, but you know, it's, it's something in that range that you know maybe sort of ten to hundred ki- tons per kilogram for a human being. And so, if you had a thousand people, and that just run that numbers up, and you start to get a massive structure. Never mind adding on the propulsion system, the power supply. So probably what you'd want to do is to have um, a strategy where you'd have either several Starships. Or, um, or it's one starship, but you cordon off. So there's different um, colonies, right? So and I know ideas have been explored in, in science fiction. This way, if there's any problem in one, the others can help, or you're isolated from the problem. There was a pandemic, for example. Um, and you need to have um, the ability to automate uh, reusable materials on board. So if something breaks down, you, know, you need to be able to manufacture those materials on board. Um, and this is the beauty of 3D printing, because it has massive implications for the future of space travel. Um ultimately um when <clears throat> I've looked at all these ideas for world ships, and they're very romantic, and um, you know, I, I quite like them. Um, one of the um I think thoughts I've had is that this is probably not the way in the long term we're going to explore deep space. Um, and there's a limit to how far you can go, which we can get to. Um I, I think it's more likely that um Maybe you'd send something like a starshot probe, which would be easier and cheaper to do. And as it gets towards that stellar system, it grows itself, right? So it's like a biological organic starship. So it's, it's starting to get the light from the stars. As it's approaching it. And so it's got energy. And that energy starts to grow the structure in the way that a plant would grow or a crystal would grow. And it starts to construct its own starship. And imagine what, maybe once you've built the fundamental structure, it then, you know, the program would tell it to start to then take the embryos that you've got on board and to start to grow those. So maybe you start to grow a few crew members um, and the robots, the, you know, the artificial intelligence, which is what the program would be constituted on, will do all of this. They would do all of this thinking. And and then you get there and you arrive at your planet or you arrive at your moon or wherever you're going or just your your, your orbit, and um, you grow everything in situ. Um, in, in principle, you can grow an entire civilization um, just from starting from that little premise. Um, you know, and that, I think that's probably likely the way um, deep space exploration is likely to go in terms of humans getting out there, unless we can find a loophole like wormholes or warp drive. And at the moment, um, you know, the evidence is not strong that we could do that.
2: Yeah, I mean it'd be it'd be a really strange I mean that's a that's a great concept I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to unpick all the very strange odd things that can come out of the uh if you send identical probes off to different systems and they've got identical crew members on board <laughs> and they can communicate to each other and go, god you look just like me Uh yeah <laughs> there's a reason yeah. for that um yeah that's that's a very very interesting interesting concept not one that I've not one that I've read in science fiction at the moment, I don't think. Is there any...
1: Another thought about that is that, um it's t- t- with governance models and so forth, if you were sending a whole crew of people, um, you know, people can criticise certain um, ideologies on planet Earth, like certain religious belief systems. But actually there is an argument that it may be that you need a st- either a military or a, st- or a strong religious kind of framework as the basis of that social culture in order to hold it together. Otherwise, you're just going to have uh, people, um, you know, um, having a revolution on board. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, I mentioned R.C. Clark Clarke earlier. Um R. C. Clarke was a huge believer in um, the f- in the future artificial intelligence will come. Um, he actually described it as Homo Electronicus, and he talked about this in Profiles of the Future, which I think was published in 1968. And uh, he said that uh, in the future, it's not that human beings Will be driving the submarines and driving the spaceships. We will become them, right? So we'll we enter symbiosis with them, and eventually there'll be no distinction between us. So, um, and so you know we can actually experience what it's like to be an airplane or or to uh, to be a submarine or to be a spacecraft. And so when we think about our artificial intelligence and gets to the nearest stars, uh, that actually may be us. Um, but then it but then it goes to the question of what is us right so what does it mean to be a human is it our physical makeup because in in principle as you know all of the uh the senses right now i'm speaking to you um and i have all of my senses my my sight my hearing my touch and it's all coming through but that's transmitting information to my brain and my brain is creating some imaginary reality based on those projections but if i could put my brain in a jar and i could also um get those same stimuli through those sensors would I know the difference okay so and then we get to virtual reality where virtual reality is going um so I there's so much that's potentially in the future um that it's really difficult to tell what direction it's going to go do you have a roadmap
2: for what how you see interstellar travel so we're we're starting off with with the, I'm a, presumably you think we are going to we're going to be starting off with uh starshot style probes where does it go on to next where does it go on to next and w- how do you see the the roadmap
1: of interstellar unfurled? yeah I, I do in fact i just published uh an example roadmap in david's just in the last issue um although i wrote that in 2011 for the 100 year starshot um yeah i mean <clears throat> you know whether starshot ever gets to a launch remains to be seen because there's lots of things that could you know upset that that program um but it's certainly he's still doing fantastic research and so forth um there is you're right there is enormous gap between that and say world ships big conscious of people which is you know first of all is the voyager like probes which are much bigger in mass and but doing more science and then then you go up to the next level um we have looked at those in so project Icarus, you know i should mention project across is the uh what we, what we did is uh, I, I I realized that uh, I wanted to redesign Daedalus, and so we set about doing that. At some point, we ended up with over 100 people involved. Uh, we've now got about five Starship designs, all of which are um, you know solving some of the issues of the Daedalus project because there's lots of reasons why Daedalus wouldn't work. Um, I think I heard Alan Bond say it had a 40% reliability of actually getting to its destination because there's lots of things that break down, you know there's little bombs going off 250 times a second. I mean, yeah. the, the heat and the fatigue on that structure is just, so, um, the, and it, so what, what you tend to do when you look at interstellar roadmaps is, um, first of all, um, there's the distance where, you know, what's the destinations we can go to. And so i mentioned Capella, the York cloud, there's, there's, getting to the nearest stars and then whatever else is in between, which we don't quite know yet. Maybe there's more dwarf planets like Sedna out there. And, um, so, um, and then it's, uh, you know, how can we get there? What's the technology to get there? So the propulsion system is one of those elements. And so fusion obviously is not quite ready yet. We're still, we've got a natural fusion program on Earth. Uh, that's my background is uh inertial confinement fusion. And uh, there's a, mostly the magnetic fusion um, is, is making in modes, I would say. Um, but there's lots of other ideas for fusion. There's antimatter potentially. Um, if we could uh, figure out how to keep it stable um, and bring enough of the stuff together. Um, but then there's this light beaming idea, solar cells, which are, are really, in principle, dead easy, right? Because it's just, just a, a huge reflective sheet with a large area collecting photons from the sun, which is pushing it. The problem is, as you know, gra- as gravity falls off inversely square resistance, so does light. And so um, as you get um, further away from the sun, um, the pressure on the cell falls off. So in my opinion, solar cells are not really a good idea for interstellar missions unless you have um, an enormous cell like tens of miles across, really close to the sun, then you can get the acceleration. But, you know, whether the material could survive that enormous luminosity, 10 to the 24 watts, whatever it is from the sun, 26 watts. Um, so, um, so that's why you go to directed energy because you can beam energy um, or you could beam particles. So There's lots of these uh, propulsion systems what I would say is that uh, um, there's an, very little going on in terms of other possibilities. There's lots of conjecture out there about space drives, you know, which the idea of uh, you know, there's the, the, the interstellar ramjet, the idea of mining interstellar hydrogen in the interstellar medium is, is sort of like a space drive, but it's, it's not actually mining um, the properties of space itself. Um, but it's it's mining hydrogen in space. But there's other ideas where actually we believe there may be energy trapped up um, in the quantum vacuum itself. And so if we could tap that, you know that that would certainly enable um, a game changer. And there's very little research going on. There's been a few papers. There's been a few studies. Um, and these programs just are not being funded with any kind of rigor and uh, and determination. Um, so I would like to see some of that done. So if I was to sit down and someone said, okay, uh, we're going to allocate several trillion dollars, which is in the current environment, it's very unlikely because we just spent it trying to deal with the pandemic. Um, it, it does amaze me how, um, by the way, you know, when we had the financial crash years ago, we were suddenly able to produce billions of dollars um, mm. to bail out the banks. And right now, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we're producing, you know, Trillions to sort of um, help out with the economy and so forth um, before it crashes, and yet when it when we get back to normal times, you know, even Apollo was like 4.6 percent of his GDP. Um, I mean, the, the actual spending on, on space is incredibly low, um, and yet it's been estimated that um, I saw a paper recently that the actual return on investment for Apollo was something like 200 billion dollars on the economy. Um, so you get enormous returns in space. Um, so um, you know, in order to build a roadmap, I, I would say we need to do more research first. It doesn't. It's not to say that I want to. I don't want to do those one-shot missions. I'm a big fan of the moonshot idea. The idea of it's not necessarily a sustainable program, but it, you just want to launch something. And and even if you just do it once just to see what you can find out and what you can do, okay? So, um, and that's what I think is the value of Starshot, unless it builds that architecture up and it starts launching thousands of these things, and then that value is amplified even more. Um, But I I personally want to see a lot more R&D done. I want to see the universities get more involved in interstellar flight. Um, Rather than it being seen as just a science fiction field, which I think historically it was, it's taken a long time to improve the credibility of the field. Um, you know, we I mentioned warp drive, you know, it wasn't until 1994 when a Cardiff University Mexican physicist, Miguel Kubia, decided as part of his postdoc work to write a paper because he didn't get away with it then because it was just a, a Gedanken experiment, a thought experiment. And uh, he wrote a paper on whether you could use GR, general relativity, um, to actually give you something like the warp in the space. And that that produced thousands of papers. That are followed. Um, it's just it started a whole field of warp drive. You know when we would ha- actually do it, and you know in principle we can. It's just there's lots of other re- things that you know. Just like the thickness of the bubble has to be Planck scale length, and it just creates such extreme energy densities that you effectively get like black hole singularities surrounding the vehicle. And it's just there's loads of loads of physics issues. Um, so I, I would personally like to see more of the universities um, and even private industry get involved with some of these technologies maybe that needs to be done in a way that there's a contemporaneous benefit to human society. So if you're, for example, if you're developing more um, better power reactors than say the Voyager's got, or we we can use at the moment, maybe those power reactors should also have potential to be used on Earth, right? So so maybe there's an argument for that, that there's a parallel benefit um, to any technologies we develop. So while you're developing the technologies for space, are also developing the, the technologies to help help Earth Point One, um, and so there is a roadmap that you can go along. Um, but I, I would say that at the moment we need to do more R and D, uh, and I would say we need to spend you know at least a decade of rigorous R and D of well-funded R and D with different institutions on all of the options. Um, one of the, the bees in my bonnet is that if you look at all of the different studies for you know propulsion systems, for example, whether it's masers, lasers fusion, antimatter, different types of fusion, cells. What you see is that there's no apples and apples comparisons. So when someone says, oh, this technology is better than that one, it's like, yes, but your payload was a thousand times bigger and your mission time is this difference. And So what we need to do is we need to put things on a, on a like-for-like comparison um, in order to see what the real potential is. And, and, and the best way to do that, I believe, is to throw those technologies, plug them into a, a mission platform, So like, let's say we decide we're going to do a 1,000 EU mission. So what's the different technologies that we can use and how do they compare carrying the same payload and do the same for an interstellar mission? And that's not really been done, in my view. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into
2: space. There you go, Jamie. Super long, uh, little interview there. Uh, Well, I absolutely loved it. I can't wait for part two. What a legend. Yes, I will have more conversations with Kelvin. He's he's a very interesting character. We got into the, the philosophy of science as well, so it's very worth. it. He's uh, conscious stars thing all started. He gave me a phone call, very very kindly asked me to check his calculation about stellar parallax, which I did, and and and, and I <laughs> got the same ans- I got the same answer as him, so I was very there pleased with myself. So maybe yeah. I can call myself a scientist. I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Jamie. Yes. Uh what 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 should people do if they want to uh support the podcast and conversely well, support uh um this week your little charity. Next week I want to nominate uh Medecins Sans Frontieres.
0: Yes. Yes, that's excellent uh, because choice that was. As well. That
2: was that was offered by the patrons on so, the Discord channel.
0: Yeah, just a reminder, I am trustee of a wonderful mental health charity called SMART um and that's where your money will be going to if you hop on over to www.interplanetary.org.uk and there is information there on how to become a patron and that's where your money will go we're putting our money into the charity your money still goes to the podcast so yes thank you very much it's uh, very heartwarming seeing all of these donations
2: i want to wish all our listeners Good health. Good health. In these crazy times, do you know what's annoying, Jamie? I've been so busy at work. You because have. Because obviously been we're, busy, we're, yeah. we're, we're having to change our style of teaching and all that kind of caper. Uh-huh. That, um, yeah, I have, I just haven't stopped. But, uh, yes, I really wanted to do more sort of live shows and stuff like that. I haven't even been able to see all the other live shows that all our friends have been doing. I know. Well, listen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen.
0: We've just got to get through this last little bit, and then we'll all be let free again, and we can do fun stuff.
1: So hold on.
0: Stay inside. Stay healthy. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Bye-bye, Spudcuts. See you soon, bye. Bye -bye. Bye Bye-bye.